Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, as Women's History Month begins, we'll visit the historic home of businesswomen Carrie and Ella Rossiter. They were very strong, influential women, great business sense. They felt that women's abilities were not tied to their sex. We'll discuss women's suffrage and race. On occasion, black and white women reformers worked across racial lines to achieve a common goal. And we'll talk about historic structures in Eatonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Shortly after women acquired the right to vote in 1920, Ella Rossiter, who was born in 1900, started a successful insurance agency. Her older sister, Carrie Rossiter, had been well prepared to take over her father's Standard Oil Agency when he died in 1921. Carrie was just 23 years old. Barbara West is the site manager of the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley. It actually began when she was about 17 years old. Uh, she was invited by her father to help him out in the business, and she being the eldest child, uh, her sister and three younger brothers were too young and <clears throat> involved, still involved in their schooling. So she started working in her father's business, and he taught her all of the practices. He introduced her to all of his clients. Uh, she worked with the billing. So she, gave, she really gained firsthand knowledge of how to run his business. Um, and then, of course, um, in 1920, when the women got the vote, um, about, as you said, about six months or so later is when um, Mr. Rossiter passed away and, and Carrie stepped in to fill his shoes. Carrie Rossiter traveled to a Standard Oil Board of Directors meeting in Kentucky to ask permission to take over her father's agency. She listened at the keyhole as a heated debate took place. Finally, somebody yelled, let the little lady have it, she'll fail in a year and we'll give it to a man. But that's not what happened. She ran that agency for 62 years before finally retiring in 1983. It was a very long, successful relationship. They adored her, and in fact, uh, on her 50th anniversary with Standard Oil, 
they featured her in a long article and, and the cover of their shareholders magazine. And they thought the world of her. Above and, and beyond all else, Carrie was a lady and she was very prim and proper, always dressed in her hat, always with her gloves, very assertive, but always a lady. And they loved that about her. And she became a poster child, if you will, for Standard Oil and later Chevron USA. Upon her retirement, then-President Ronald Reagan sent Carrie Rossiter a handwritten note of congratulations. The Rossiter family home is now operated as the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens. Half a century before the Rossiter family occupied the property, John Carroll Houston established there the oldest homestead in the 100 miles between New Smyrna and Jupiter Inlet, Barbara West. It was meant to be a plantation. Arlington was the name, and when he came in um, 1849 and started scouting the property, he was a soldier at that time, he actually obtained the property in 1859 and brought his sons and his slaves, he had up to about 10 slaves down there, and they built the family home, which was the first home in that area, also, all of the slave cabins were there, and the history is that the last remaining slave cabin was developed into the kitchen of what was to become the Rossiter home. So it went through several different families before uh, it came into the Rossiter family in 1904. Twenty years after slavery ended in the United States, William Raish and his family lived on the property beginning in 1885. The Rossiter family continued building out from the former slave cabin in the early 20th century. By 1908, that structure was connected to a two-story home. In the mid-1970s, Girl Scout India Fraser recorded an interview with Carrie Rossiter. Carrie explained that her mother was from Palatka, Florida, and her father was from Georgia. She described hitching a ride on the mailboat as a child. The mail um, boat left about 7 in the morning. And, of course, the night before, I didn't sleep very well. I wiggled all night and woke up early in the morning because it was one of the exciting experiences of my life. And we'd go down to the water, and in the morning early, the river was very calm. You could look down and see that at that time the river was clear. You could look down and see the fish, and it had a salty smell, which was very exciting. The, ma the boat would usually be running when we got down there. And the ma then in time, the mailman came with his mail sack, and we started to cross the river to Merritt Island. Now, our first stop was over at, at Tropic. That was the name of the little settlement, Tropic. And um, we'd stop at the dock, and uh, one of the Enzes would come down with a... a orange juice and cookies for us and we'd put off the mail and these people would usually send their order for groceries up by the mailman to Coco which would be brought back on the trip home and then the next drop was Lotus and that was called the o Osteen Dock and they would come down with food uh, cookies or coffee for the adults and we'd have a very enjoyable usually the children would come down and bring their pets with them and so, of course, that was exciting. Then we'd go on up to the Georgiana stop. 
and the same thing would happen. Uh, maybe one of the people who lived in Georgiana would be very famous for her cookies or some other goodies, and they would always bring them down for all the people on the boat. The next stop was um, Footman, and uh, the same thing would happen there. Always, some of the children would have something new to show us, a bird or a possum or a new dog or some, something that we were very interested in. And then we would go on into Coco. And the mailboat would, would land in Coco and everybody would get off and go do their shopping or their errands in Coco. And um, then, usually, then we'd have lunch. And I remember there was a little lunch place, a little tea room near the boat that had ham sandwiches in buns. And I have never tasted anything and with a Coke as good in my life as those sandwiches. By that time, we were quite exhausted. We'd usually go back to the boat and have a little nap. And um, around, I guess, 5 o'clock, the, train, the train would come in and the mailman would bring his sack back to the boat and off we'd go again. Now, going back, there was one great mystery that I was a grown-up lady before I ever knew what it was. There was one dock. No children or ladies could go ashore, just the men. And the men all wanted to go ashore. They were anxious to go ashore. And it was years later that I learned there was a moonshine still in a little packing house at the end of that dock. But it was a mystery for years and years and years. And uh, I've had many trips on boat since, but I have never had the enjoyment of the thrill and excitement that the trip between O'Galley and Coco with the mail. The Rossiter House Museum preserves the home as it was when Carrie and Ella grew up there in the early 20th century. Site manager Barbara West. One of the artifacts in that ladies parlor is the gilded bird cage and it's a mechanical musical bird cage it has a musical bird that flaps his wings it's said to be a finch and it has real bird feathers on it and Carrie used to say that they loved to play it but they were only allowed to play it on special occasions now we play it almost every time we have a tour there and it's one of the most popular artifacts Also, there um, in the gentleman's parlor is the is Mr. Rossiter's ivory topped walking cane, uh, his cigar thermidor, because this was the only room in the house that he was allowed to smoke in. And in fact, women weren't in, allowed in unless they were invited. But right now we also keep Ella Rojero Rossiter's mahjong case in there and she loved oriental antiques she loved mahjong and this mahjong case is made from bamboo uh, the tiles are hand-painted ivory tiles and it's said that she imported that from the orient so that she would have a special game to play another um, artifact that gets quite a bit of attention are the Limoges fish plates or fish serving sets. Uh, the Rossiters loved to entertain and they had many different sets of various kinds of dishes, but this Limoges set 
is is all hand colored and and then fired and it's just beautiful and we love to bring that out and show it to people when they visit a century ago the rossiter sisters each became successful businesswomen in florida with carrie rossiter gaining national recognition barbara west says that their story has relevance for women today they were very strong influential women great business sense they felt that um, women's abilities were not tied to their sex. Barbara West is site manager of the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in Ogalley. Tours are currently by appointment only and masks are required for entry. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can find great books on Florida history and culture. Recent FHS Press titles include Brim of Panther Clan, The 400-Year Survival of an American Indian Family by Patricia Wickman. What We Have Endured, a novel of the Seminole War by John and Mary Lou Missile with Willie Johns. And Mastodons, Mansions, and Antebellum Ghosts, a sketchbook of voices rising up from Florida's Red Hills by Rose Knox and Graham Shorb. Those books and many more can be found at myfloridahistory.org, where you can also listen to archived editions of this program and watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, as we enter Women's History Month, I'm reminded of last fall's Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture. Dr. Martha S. Jones, Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University, spoke on the topic of women's suffrage and race. Tell us about Dr. Jones' work and how that relates to Florida history. In her presentation for the Schaffner Lecture and in a book titled Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, Dr. Jones takes the long view of the struggle for suffrage. She argues that, quote, the suffrage crusade that encompasses the years from the 1848 meeting in Seneca Falls, New York, to the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920 did not win the vote for black women. She focuses on black women who fought against racism and sexism from the earliest days of the Republic, women who demanded that the United States realize its best ideals. 
It was a powerful presentation that called upon the audience to think more critically about woman's suffrage, the 19th Amendment, and the role of black women in shaping American thought on voting rights. Is there a way for people who missed the lecture to see Dr. Jones's presentation? Yes. The easiest way to view the 2020 Gerald Schaffner Lecture is to type Gerald Schaffner Lecture 2020 into YouTube. In offering this national and larger historic view, how does her presentation fit with what we know about black women's activities in Florida history? Dr. Maxine Jones, a professor at Florida State University, published an article in the FHQ in 1999 titled, Without Compromise or Fear, African-American Female Activists, that supports Dr. Jones' interpretation of black women's activities. Let me provide a little background to explain an explosion of organized activity among black women that occurred in what has been labeled the Progressive Era, 1890 to 1920. Both black and white women engaged in an unprecedented rise of women's organizations that ranged from literary clubs to fortnightly discussion groups to the Women's Christian Temperance Union and women's suffrage advocacy. Some groups focused on specific problems associated with industrialization and urbanization, including public health care, public sanitation, creation of juvenile courts and detention centers, and women's labor issues. In large cities, women established settlement houses to address the problems encountered by migrants from rural areas and immigrants from other nations. They also fought for the creation of public parks and playgrounds and standardized public education. On occasion, black and white women reformers worked across racial lines to achieve a common goal, as in the case of juvenile courts and settlement houses. In 1890, white women's clubs established the General Federation of Women's Clubs to bring the many voices of disparate club members together to amplify their impact. In 1896, black women club members organized the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs to achieve the same goal. The NACWC adopted the motto, Lifting as We Climb. Florida established local and state organizations that were part of the NACWC. Would we recognize some of the names of uh, these members of the NACWC? Indeed, we would. Mary McLeod Bethune was Florida state president of the NACWC and then national president in the 1920s. She fought for women's suffrage both locally and nationally, but she also was a strong and outspoken advocate for equality. Eartha M. M. White of Jacksonville supported the women's suffrage movement and championed the vote in 1920, but her focus was more on social justice issues, including feeding the poor, the establishment of orphanages and daycare for working mothers, and access to health care. Professor Maxine Jones shows us the ideological differences that existed in the black community. Eartha White's approach was more in line with that of the black leader Booker T. Washington, while Mary McLeod Methuen broke with the Washington model and demanded equality, the focus of Dr. Martha Jones' work. Fascinating as always, Connie. Thanks. Thank you. 
Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community is hosting a series of interactive community conversations on Zoom. The next one is on Tuesday, March 16th at 7 p.m. It features William A. Darity and Kirsten Mullen, co-authors of the book From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Also on the panel is Paul Ortiz, author of books including Emancipation Betrayed and The African-American and Latinx History of the United States. I'll be moderating the discussion. More information is at ZoraFestival.org. The town of Eatonville is one of the oldest African-American municipalities in the United States and the hometown of Harlem Renaissance writer Zora Neale Hurston. As Holly Baker reports, there are also historic structures in Eatonville. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation recently announced 2020's 11 to Save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The town of Eatonville is featured on the 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about Eatonville and its inclusion on the 11 to Save list. Eatonville is a very unique and historically significant community, especially in the Black community. You know, it was established in 1887 as a self-governing um, all-Black municipality, so it was really one of the first examples in the U.S. of an all-Black city actually being formed, and it's still around today. If you go back into the history of Florida and the history of Central Florida, so after emancipation, you start to see new development taking place in Central Florida in particular. They want to be able to have an environment to where they could govern their own selves and create a self-sufficient community for them and their families and friends. And so Eatonville became that in, in 1887 uh, as a result of a landowner uh, whose last name was Eaton uh, agreeing to sell land to uh, former enslaved to settle in that area, which is also is very significant because it was difficult for Black people to actually acquire land at that point. Eatonville's historic district was designated and added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1998. Eatonville contains more than 40 historic buildings, many of them from the late 19th century. You know, there are some buildings in Eatonville that do date back to the late 19th century. There's a Robert Mosley House, which was uh, completed in 1888. 
There's also the Thomas House, which is on Kennedy Boulevard, Eatonville's main commercial corridor. It actually dates back to 1881. It's got a very unique history. At one point, uh, it was a jute joint. It was a church and a public library. Uh, the church, which is St. Lawrence AME, it actually predates the city of Eatonville. That church is organized in 1882. You know, they constructed a new facility in the early 70s across the street. Uh, from the Thomas House. And, and so it's another example of a, of a building that is nearing that age of 50 years old that is significant to the culture and heritage of Eatonville. Many of Eatonville's historic properties are related to its most famous daughter, Zora Neale Hurston. But one historic building, formerly known as Club Eaton, has its own place in music history. Before the days of racial integration, Club Eaton was a popular stop along the Chitlin Circuit a collection of entertainment venues, primarily in the southeastern United States, that supported black musicians, actors, and comedians. There are some other interesting stories that deserve to be told as well. You know, Club Eaton is an example of that. Um, so the Chitlin Circuit, for those who may not know what that is, this was, uh, took place in a period of time when, when you were an African-American musician or performer you, know, you weren't always allowed to play in certain venues across uh, the country and especially in the South. So the circuit became a way to uh, a network of theaters, juke joints, public, I mean, Masonic lodges, uh, nightclubs and restaurants where performers could safely travel to different communities and play and then earn a living. And in Eatonville, Club Eaton was a, a really big spot in Central Florida. So it opened in 1950, and it became a spot where big entertainers and musicians, including Sam Cooke, uh, Duke Ellington, Aretha Franklin, Cab Calloway, all came through town to play. And so it was really a, a big Central Florida destination for the Black community. And since Central Florida was so spread out, the club also included or a rooming house or a hotel so musicians could actually stay overnight in Eatonville before traveling. Today, the town of Eatonville continues to be a symbol of Black empowerment and autonomy. Ennis Davis hopes that Eatonville's inclusion on the Florida Trust's 11 to Save list will bring increased tourism and economic opportunities to the town. You know, there is a recent study done for the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor on Black heritage and tourism and the opportunities there. And uh, what the survey, market survey, indicated was that over you know, $34 billion was being spent by tourists seeking Black history in the states of Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. So it's certainly an opportunity for a community like Eatonville. And you know, being on the 11 to Save is a way to bring awareness to that rich history that Eatonville has, as well as leading to potential opportunities to help uh, restore, revitalize, and help the community capitalize uh, from an economic standpoint on the heritage and history that it does hold. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society for daily posts on Florida history topics. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Please stay safe and healthy and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.